I've always said like if um if I could have given birth and then just gone straight from the hospital to like a commune of women you know all at different stages of child rearing to just be amongst women and knowledge for that really raw period of sort of zero to kind of three months I would have done it I'd be there in a heartbeat Bosom. I'm Lucy Hicks-Beach and this is a podcast where I want to find out how women, non-binary and gender non-conforming people have influenced and shaped our thoughts and lives. In a world where women's contributions are often disregarded, I want to learn more about how and how much they have impacted the people we are and the society we live in. To do this, I'm talking to guests about how people of marginalised genders have influenced their lives, identities and understandings of the world. Today, I'm speaking to Natalia Garcia. After studying English at Trinity Dublin and international relations at SOAS, she started her career in advertising before, as she says, moving business side at PlayStation, handling global marketing strategy for first-party games. She's a mum of two, and after setting up her own business, she is now the director of brand for mobile games at video game publisher Square Enix. To top this off, she is also the most knowledgeable Disney fan I think I've ever met. Hello, Natalia. And welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you so much for coming on. Because the premise of this podcast is that I've asked you to pick five women or non-binary people that have influenced you in some way, shape or form. And people have often asked me what my who my people would be. And like an idea that I always come back to is my cousin, my older cousin and all her friends, because she used to bring them to stay. And when we were younger, because um, she's about 13 years older than me, and you're one of her best friends and my brother and sister and I used to just be obsessed with all her older friends and so when I think of the people that have influenced me I actually think of all that gang of people that I like really looked up to when I was younger so yeah it feels very feels very apt that you're here <laughs> oh bless you she does have good judgment Atty, but um that is such a compliment I'm so I'm so happy to be here because like I um in general I think this podcast not this episode yet (laughs) the podcast in general is just so awesome and just generally I think like sitting down and talking to you about women is you know for a whole morning is just my jam really couldn't be better it's I mean I've I really started on a kind of self-serving mission because it's just a really (laughs) nice activity to do is to speak to people that I like and yeah talk about talk about gender it's just all I want to do really me too. I'm obsessed with it. I'm completely obsessed with it. So yeah, I wanted to ask, because you're about kind of 15 years older than me, so you're mm-hmm. like an interesting, you're not the same age as my parents, and mm. you're not the same age as me, and so you're kind of in a gap of people that, like an age gap that I don't really spend time with, and you're yeah. a businesswoman and a mother of young children. I'm really interested, like, thinking about my future my friends we talk about this quite a lot if this feels like a really generic question but I'm just so interested about how you have managed to kind of work out your identity with both of those things as part of your life I think it's such a work in progress I think it comes at you and it's it's really difficult to anticipate how you're going to be once you've had children or once you've you know started your career and you, you run those two things together it's a weird one I think from what I can tell, I'm I'm not necessarily alone in 
feeling like once you've had kids, your identity is sort of brought into question. I think you do lose a bit of your identity. Well, some people do um, when you have very small kids because you just become a constant caregiver and then it forces you to reprioritize where your time's going to be, where your where your priorities are going to be. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think it's constantly in flux, and I don't think I don't think anyone's really figured it out, especially because we're only just examining the rigidity of the five day week as a thing. But that's really changing. It's got to rapidly change, which frees up a lot of opportunities for women and especially parents. In fact, any gender at all, because. Once you have to divide your priorities, the old models don't necessarily fit. And that's how I've kind of done it personally. I've been, look, it's a mix of luck. I'm not going to say it's not luck and um, being fortunate enough to, like I took two, I think the first two years out with my first child. And then when I got back in, I was kind of doing my own thing so I could dictate my my time a bit more and then and now I work at a company in a, in a team that is constantly thinking about the responsibility that we have to parents to different ways of working like some people work better at nights mm. you know I mean there's people just passed over all the time for promotion because they're not necessarily in the right meeting at the right time or you know they're seen as as kind of impacted by how many children they choose to have like I've seen it so many times it's so sad when you have kids because people it's almost like as soon as you're married you're on watch like you're on womb yeah. watch by the company and um a lot of people aren't given big projects because oh are they going to be here in two years time or three years time to deliver that and then obviously there's like that you know the pre-pregnancy time where you're under watch and then there's pregnancy itself where oh she's going to be gone in a few months time probably not the best time to promote her for us and then there's when you come back I've even heard people being described as being in oh you're still in your baby bubble you know, can't give you that project or whatever so I don't know. It's a kind of a mix of picking the right team, the right company, the right culture, and then also mm. re-examining your own priorities. It's a tough one. I don't think there's a right answer. But also I think, oh, not to go on too much about it, but I think also it's okay to be interdependent. Like you're not going to have your exact correct formula all times. It's okay for you and your partner to take turns at having a real bash at career. It's okay to go back and forth and share that responsibility it seems like an unfulfillable task that society has created to just assume that two people can raise a child for the purpose of putting them back into society. Yeah. And these terms feel very general. But mm. if like society and businesses and the government, if, if they want to create people that will make society work, it's actually an unfair task to put that on just like one parent or two parents it yeah. should actually be this collective thing and that's kind of where schools come in I guess but mm. it doesn't follow through this idea that you're meant to yeah both no. be contributing to society whilst also creating people to contribute to society yeah. there should be some like wider influence and support in there yeah for sure you're just expected to work more hours and harder than we've ever worked and if you think about like the whole of history like when have both parents been at work with mm. this much output and um, this little help uh, yeah. it's it's really crazy like I, I feel like I don't know you become a parent then you then you regret how far away you live from all your family and your friends because that's your that's your little collective but yeah there's a huge amount of pressure on parents like I've always said like if um if I could have given birth and then just gone straight from the hospital to like a commune of women you know all at different stages of child rearing to just be amongst women and knowledge for that really raw period of sort of zero to 
kind of three months, I would have done it. I would be there in a heartbeat because you do need support. That sounds dreamy. (laughs) Um, So today, what I've asked you to do is to pick five women, gender non-conforming or non-binary people who have impacted your life in some way. And you've picked them from five categories, which are a childhood icon, a fictional character, somebody who's no longer alive, somebody you've never met and somebody you know personally. And we're just going to talk about them for the next however long it takes to get all our feelings out. Yes. Um, Does that sound all right to you? Yes, it really does. Great. Let's get started with the first person. Today, the first figure of influence that we're going to talk about is a fictional character. Mm. And you have picked Mary Poppins. It's a very truthful one and probably the only levity that you're going to get in this entire morning. <laughs> so I think we should just enjoy it whilst we can. Um, she was, it was you know, obviously my favourite film. I think it's a really iconic film even still. I can't think of anything that's quite as iconic and impossible to recreate as Mary Poppins. Mm. Just even the violin trills at the start just get me. I just want to cry. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think for her, I think there's a, there's a really... She's such an enigmatic character and it's a mix of, like, control and magic, which mm. is so amazing that runs throughout. I just love the way she pitches up as well. She's like, right, I'm here and I'm taking charge. I'm going to run all of your lives better, including you in the kitchen. If you don't know it yet. She's very clear about how she's going to be paid and oh, yeah. when she's going to be off. And thank you so much for your feedback, but I don't want it. Uh, I'm just going to ignore that feedback for now and uh, and just get on with being an agent of chaos. Except she's not really an agent of chaos, I don't think. She's more of an agent of change. And at the heart of all of that, she's compassionate. Mm. You know, she's almost like a charitable figure who comes around and fixes things, looks at broken families and understands that she can fix them. It's really lovely. She watched it over and over. I'm sure we all did. Yeah, in some senses, the film, I've definitely, when I was younger, I found her, it was kind of confronting the fact that she wasn't Mm. just this warm, cosy nanny figure. She was really assertive, but she was also magical and really kind. She doesn't really shout. She just has really clear boundaries. I think all of these things are really formative as well. I really do. Like when I think now about women that I would like to be like or grow up to be, (laughs) should I have any more growing up to do? It does occur to me that maybe the foundations were laid in my childhood around women who who can assert their very clear boundaries. And I also feel like moving into the business world, I've realised how imposter syndrome can represent quite frequently for women and that's not necessarily linked to an actual sense of your idea of your self-belief it can be a bit different to your self-belief or an assessment of your skills it comes out of left field and it hits you and it's really weird because I think a lot of women that I look up to that I've met either in business or potentially formed in childhood like Mary Poppins like there's not a shred of imposter syndrome about her no not at all (laughs) thing she's completely confident and decisive and all of those things I really kind of want to work on for myself when you're talking about boundaries as well it's interesting because she's actually one of the few female Disney characters who does have boundaries from that early Mm. earlier time like if you think about Snow White or Aurora They're just figures that have literally no control over their existence or what happens to them. 
And Mary Poppins mm. is such a self-agent. She has total autonomy. You have no sense of where she's come from, right? Or what, no. her, what her past is or that anything has made her who she is other than who she's decided to be. She's got that magic that mm. the Disney princesses have. But it seems to come from herself rather than coming yeah. from a fairy that's put it on her. That is very true. It's interesting that it's like that's that strong, like she has such a sense of power. Mm. It was also Julie Andrews' like first movie. I also just love her. Mm. Like I've read both her biographies recently and um, it's just fascinating. Like she also had such a an enormous sense of strength having gone through like a lot throughout her life. But um, yeah, her, her craft is so evident in that role, I think more than any other possibly sound of music, but that's up for debate. <laughs> um this one won her the oscar so she thought in her oscar speech she thanks the director of oh, um so my fair lady for not casting her even though yeah, she, she should have been cast she thanked jack warner yeah thank you so much for <laughs> not giving me that role this is just such a good um oh my god the shade So I'd love to move on now to the second person mm. that you would like to speak about, or that you would like to speak about, that I would like to speak about <laughs> with you. And this is somebody that you've never met, and you've picked Cindy Gallup. <gasps> Cindy Gallup. I can't remember where I first came across Cindy Gallup, but I'm so glad I did. She has a, a TEDx talk that everyone should go and see, but she's just generally a great speaker, I think. Um, she's very galvanizing when she speaks but she's also another one of those people that is unashamed expressive challenging disruptive and you know you need you need these figures i think when you're a woman in corporations or in any business you need these figures that show you that it's okay to show up and tell everybody in the room that you think that they're wrong or you've got different opinion not be sidelined and just to really throw yourself into being yourself be rowdy like i love rowdy women and so does she. Like she, it's just about, you know, carving out your own space and being like, no, this is what I do. Mm. Um, you know, she does, she does really cool things. She does so many things. I mean, she started in advertising. Yeah. So I identify with her in, in, in a kind of industry way, but she also, I think she set up a Facebook sort of bot a while ago that was meant to help women demand and get the paycheck or the pay rise that they need. And she kind of coaches you through how to do that. And one of her bits of advice is to just go in there and say the biggest number that you can say out loud without laughing, <laughs> um, which I think is a great piece of advice. That's and we forget it. Yeah, we forget it so easily when it comes around to negotiating a job. But she's just so fierce. She's so unapologetic. And she talks a lot about age. And she says, I don't want to read anything anti-aging. I'll stop buying your stuff if you talk about anti-aging. I think she's 60 so now um i don't i don't want to have to fool people into thinking i'm younger if you're young embrace that talk about it don't think that people are going to take you less seriously if you're older do the same thing mm. i did tweet her once actually really <laughs> <laughs> i do get a bit fangirly about really random people but a few years ago i think she was in Cannes for the for the advertising festival and she whilst everyone was off schmoozing and doing whatever she was just drinking loads of rosé topless on a beach <laughs> and i was like god i just want to join you and she was like yeah we can do that i was like god okay i just have to stop myself booking a ticket to nice and <laughs> coming and sitting on the beach with you because that would be a dream the business that she set up 
I think like 12 years ago, Make Love Not Porn is really interesting too. Mm. Um, I really think quite a lot, especially having young girls, about the world that I'm bringing them into. I think what's interesting about her site is, so it's, I think, it's based around real, real world sex. So like, instead of the porn industry being, or it, it's their first introduction, mm. um, it, you know, we need something to just show what real world sex is really like. And it's a revenue sharing model. So people who upload stuff actually get, you know, 50% of the profits. Or oh, really? And it's not anti-porn, her site. It's very, let's just contextualise it with what's real and what's safe and what's enjoyable and what's funny and what's human. Mm. Um, so I, I just quite like that because I think the porn industry alone, without this kind of healthy discourse around sex, is is kind of responsible for a lot, actually. Not, not, I'm not blaming, blaming porn for for all the problems in the world, but I do think... Our view of sex is quite, um, yeah, it's led to a lot of issues. I think we have quite a lot more social problems potentially coming around the fact that we don't talk to teenage boys or young boys mm. um, about these really important topics, about consent, about enjoyment. We don't talk about that with them. And hence, we have a lot of issues with, um, you know, um, a lot of power and, and, and often, unfortunately, you know, sexual assault behind that. So, um, I think she's doing what she can. I was watching her TED talk and it's from 2009 and the audience, so it's kind of like about four or five minutes long. It's not very long. And the mm. audience just like laughs the whole way through. And I found that really interesting because I don't think now, if you had the same TED talk, I don't think people would be laughing. But it was it really highlighted how kind of even 2009, which doesn't seem that long ago, mm. that mm. that was still so uncomfortable. And she just she gets up and she's like, I'm an old woman and I have sex with men in their 20s. And what I've and she's like, and what I've realized is that what they think is sex is actually porn. And that's not OK. And she's like, I talk to these men about this and I really, we have conversations about it. She walks off stage and everyone's laughing. And I was a bit mm. like, that, that feels like a bit of a shame. And I'm glad the talk is there as a tool now. Yeah, yeah. That was just so affronting for those people to hear this woman in her 60s. She, Yeah, she says, she's like, I'm not anti-porn, but the porn industry is run by men, for men, funded by men. And that is at the foundation of those problems. But yeah, I thought it was just so an interesting true. example of this really outspoken, intelligent woman who's addressing mm. a serious societal issue. And just she kind of just got laughed away. I think she did. Yeah, I think you're right. I agree. And it's it. I think it I think it does feel slightly dated, which is a good thing, as in like, as you say, I don't think it would necessarily draw exactly the same reaction. I think people still be uncomfortable. Um, and when humans are uncomfortable, you know, they have all sorts of well, normally they laugh or they sing or they fill the space or they cough. Um, and I think that's that's really indicative of how they were yeah. responding to her messages. I think she's um I think she's got a really good point that we feel uncomfortable when we talk about female pleasure as well. Like, I think that's where it, some of it comes from. She stands up and she starts saying, oh, you know, I date younger men. Mm. Um, and immediately everyone's like, oh my God, we're talking about what you want. Oh God, oh, gross. Oh, God that's really uncomfortable. We talk about male desire the whole time. time. Um, and the whole world is framed through how can we give men what they desire? The whole porn industry is about male desire it's not about female enjoyment necessarily so um it's really interesting that she's like here's what i enjoy guys and it's so challenging for everybody um and she's uh yeah i think she was potent it potentially shows that she's kind of before her time and trailblazing 
I think I remember hearing about Make Love Not Porn back then and I and I was confronted, yeah. you know. It's a shame, the idea of somebody being, like, before her time, but mm. speaking in 2009, it is still feels yeah. confrontational for an older woman to say what she wants or desires. Yeah. Although things have changed, I agree. I think I get worried when I hear statistics that, you know, recently it was like, what is it, 97% of women have experienced sexual harassment or assault Mm. that's all of us all of us absolutely all of us um it just shows that kind of how far we have yet to go but thankfully there are people who are already thinking about this yeah already challenging the 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 machine that creates this really unhealthy world yeah she gives me hope cindy cindy gives me hope we're gonna move on now to your third person who is somebody that's no longer alive, and you have picked Virginia Woolf. I came across her when I was studying, I think it was in my A-levels. But she she was a really interesting one. She really challenged me, actually. Um, I think she was kind of different. I, you know, she wrote about Ulysses and was like, mm, this is not really my bag, it's really pretentious. And that, I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> Modernism is pretentious, God. But um, I think... When I first discovered her, I also read Mrs. Dalloway, which I absolutely loved. And, you know, just the woman preparing for her party, wandering around London, getting flowers. At the time, I think I was like sort of 17 reading it. And I was really just absolutely discovering my adulthood and um, really grounding myself in the fact that I was in London. So that was a huge thing as well. Mm. Like just wandering around London gave me so much joy. It was such an amazing experience to be an adult in London she does it so brilliantly at the end when you talk about what you've got is this moment like right now you have this moment um this breath like this is your life and it's so much more beautiful because you know that death is around the corner it blew my mind open a little bit um, reading it so for me it was you know it was very much a part of me being a sort of 17 18 year old young woman in London I then came on to learning more about her history or her her life, which is so challenging. Like I went to, I've been a couple of times to Charleston House in Sussex where her sister Vanessa lived, kind of the romance movement, the uh, romantic, romantic movement. So we had like, um, when you walk through the house, like every single inch, inch of it is painted it's so bohemian. Wow. Um, every sort of tile, every table was a canvas for her. Everything, everything she could literally physically reach is painted. Yeah, their uncommon arrangements were something else though. Like I think, and, and it's, it was interesting to me at that time because I was just forming my idea of what families look like and what relationships look like and friendships and, and the two sisters were extraordinarily close. But, you know, Vanessa Bell moved there with Clive Bell, so her sister, and they had an open marriage. So they were there with Duncan Grant, who was actually her husband, like Clive's lover, but she became obsessed with him too and begged him for a child. That lover was also there with his boyfriend. But um, a lot of people argue that, you know, that kind of setup was such a ripe ground for creativity. Like you couldn't have had the level of creativity that these people had without this sort of openness and bohemian lifestyle. Um, but I do find it all really interesting and it definitely shaped my opinions of how, how people went about things and, and go about things now. It was my first introduction to, you know, there are arrangements that aren't necessarily the standard arrangement. Um, 
when you have been brought up in a certain way in a kind of nuclear family or not even in a nuclear family if you're in something that is a regular structure like having you have divorced parents or you grow up with just only knowing one parent there are deviations of this nuclear family and it can be really I feel like I keep using this word like affronting but also mind opening to suddenly see that the that you don't have to exist in the world within a predefined structure and it's not that once you find out anything that's amazing that you have to do it but it suddenly can open up the world to thinking oh it's the world isn't just made up of these parents children parent children um it does also introduce the concept of choice as well which is something that i think we don't think much of even if we follow the traditional path i was watching like a red table talk of you know the jada pinkett smith and willow smith on polyamory um and the really salient point i took out as well from from the from my grandmother was like Okay, but everything still is a choice. Like, you need to acknowledge that you need to choose that. Mm -hmm. It's not just a default, this train just runs no matter what. Like, you need to consistently make the decision. And I think the more versions of normal that you see out there gives you an informed decision, doesn't it? It gives Mm. you a a kind of active role within whatever relationship you're in. I haven't actually watched that video, but the thing that came up on my like BBC News app this morning, it was Willow Mm. Smith reveals that she is polyamorous. And I was like, that is just such a frustrating title because the conversation has been that this idea of like not having to define, not having to live within a structure and being able to Mm. do what you want. And then you've just given her this like big fat label and just gone, yeah, this is, you've defined yourself as this and this is what you will be. And yeah it's so stressful this idea that we like live in this world that is so obsessed with labels that when you don't want a label it has to have a label it's so interesting isn't it a lot of how we might feel comfortable existing especially i think as women is not very headline worthy because of its plurality and its nature yeah like making lots of decisions or having lots of options or exploring different things is so pl- such a plural way of living that maybe it doesn't translate very well into the male language that we have today and so we can't really deal with it. It kind of goes back earlier to what you were saying about you can kind of look at it in terms of this plurality in terms of your sexuality or your gender and you can also apply it to things like about being a mum and being somebody who works mm. and yeah. actually people like Virginia Woolf and the Bloomsbury group mm. were living this life where they weren't just one part mother, one part writer. They were all of those things at once. And so actually, we should be able to take that idea and go, oh, I can be a mother and a businesswoman, but I could also be someone who loves painting. And that's just not all these separate boxes. Yeah. It's just this one. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And just reject any situation or organisation that requires you to be one thing mm. only. Maybe the pandemic's helped slightly in that... Yeah, definitely. We sort of see, like, you know, different facets of people's lives and actually people have gone, no, wait, like, what I do on Friday mornings is really important to me and I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't need to drop everything just because it's this time of day. Mm. So hopefully patterns like that have changed and people can see themselves as more whole. Yeah. I guess. So going to move on now to person number four figure of influence number four and you have picked your english teacher um dr bickley yeah dr bickley she was um yeah she was so she was fantastic so when i was around 17 18 I remember going through this enormous kind of leap mentally. I I sort of like understood the world as I do, but then I kind of had a paradigm shift, I guess you could call it. 
feminism didn't really mean something personally to me like it did thereafter. It's kind of like pre and post Dr. Bickley era <laughs> in my life. I remember taking a critical theory class and my mind just blew open. It was mainly through, I mean, the first thing they did was sort of, okay, your understanding of the world is through a lens. We all have different lenses. You can actually switch the lenses out. Mm. But these two women, and particularly Dr. Bickley, she taught me, but they just were so great at understanding. They were like, right, we're in a girls' school. These girls are about to go out into the world. We are going to bring the absolute relevance of feminism to their lives right now. And they just did it so well. They spoke so passionately, and she spoke so passionately about why it's important in real-world scenarios as well as mainly literature. Mm. Um, but she was so awesome. Like, I, th I remember, like, the, the last thing she said to us before we went off to sit our A-level exams, and it was essentially our last class with her, was, have faith in God, girls she'll take care of you which was the best but it also she 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 just introduced an absolute lifelong passion for books um I was immersed in books for a couple of years when I was taking her classes and you know just read 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 the whole time every minute that I had in my life that I could I would read and it's brought me so much peace in my life I guess um it she just showed me the absolute beauty of literature yeah, I, I credit her with all of that. It was completely different. Life was completely would have been completely different without her. There's something really specific about an English teacher. Mm. If you have a good English teacher, they can really switch your perspective. Yeah, totally. What is that? We should have examined this. Yeah, well, someone I just, needs to look at this. There's, I mean, it's the thing in like lots of indie films that it's like someone will just connect with their English teacher. I wonder if it's something about having to examine something so emotionally, yeah. which you don't necessarily wouldn't. A lot of teenagers wouldn't naturally be doing themselves. It's quite holistic too, isn't it? Yeah, English because it brings in so many disciplines. You're forced to be a person of the world that's curious about everything because you can't study English without knowing a lot about the context in which a book is written. You end up knowing a bit of science, a bit of philosophy, art, you know, music, uh, political movements. It yeah. teaches you empathy because you also have to look at different authors and different perspectives that you may not now identify with. You're forced to understand and accept that people have had completely different lives that have led to different perspectives. I actually have this really awful memory of being, must have been about 16, and we were reading mm. The White Devil by Middleton and Rowley, I think it is. I can't remember. And basically this woman goes around and she sleeps with all the men in the court and it's like a power murder fest. And I remember saying something really horrific, like, <laughs> oh, what a slut. My teacher, not ever, she never was like, that's an awful thing to say. She was like, just consider this for a second before you... I had said it, not even really thinking about it, just trying to make a joke because I'm attention-seeking. Mm. Mm. Um, <laughs> she really showed that you need to have the empathy for these characters and their situations before you just place your own lens on that. Um, yeah, it's true. They're like, it's like they kind of... I think that's a really shining a light on the fact that they are moral, moral and ethical guardians yeah. as well. They're like, okay, we're going to look after the fact that you don't fully understand the world yet because you're so young and that's okay. And like, I'm going to teach you through art how all of our realities mash together. Mm. And it's, yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think they do end up being enormous influences on your life in a moral way too. This kind of links on to your 
final choice, who is another author, Angela Carter. Again, she was, yeah, she was introduced to me by, well, I guess the curriculum really, but the classes that we had and the discussions that we had about Angela Carter really bred in me an obsession with gender. And that informed the next few years of where my studies were going. Although I think, I don't think I'm alone in the Angela Carter fan club because I remember pitching up at university. There I was being like, I've got a really good idea of what my thesis would be. And then one of the tutors was like, yeah, um, there are actually more PhDs being written on Angela Carter than any other author in the English language today. I was like, wow, okay. Not so clever now, are we? (laughs) But yeah, so the reason I got into English as a passion is because I love stories. And particularly, I do love fairy stories, which is why I'm drawn to Disney a lot. But what I loved about her is her feminist appropriation of myth or uh, fairy stories like Bluebeard. But she does it with such an incredible grip on language. But yeah, ultimately, it's about the message, right? It's about the fact that you don't need to be afraid and gullible and a victim and a passive in your own story. Mm. Now, it's relatively commonplace to have these types of stories and, and myths in TV and movies and everything. But for me, it really started there. Women's stories yeah, have been deprioritized throughout, you know, this sort of capitalist endeavor that we seem to be on in the West. But what's really interesting to me is language and whether there is a female language. And I remember studying this at the time and we were debating whether the literally the language we use right now in speaking and writing was set a long time ago by men and Mm. used by men primarily. And now in order to communicate and be part of the world, we need to use it. But innately, is there a female sentence? Is there a female beat? Is yeah. there a, is there is there a more female way of communicating than the language we use even right now when I'm talking? It's so interesting to me that are we so uncomfortable because sometimes we we just pick up the nearest tool and we've literally put on a, a, a man's coat and are walking around um, and expecting something good to come of it. Um, another book that that Carter writes. Um, that I studied at university really set that whole gender obsession on fire again, which was The Passion of New Eve, which potentially could be read quite differently now, but it's quite a weird one. This guy <laughs> wanders into the desert and undergoes an involuntary sex change. Um, oh and then he's, yeah, it's kind of weird, but he, but it's really interesting that the character wakes up as a woman, um, is quite, perturbed by where this has happened but starts to go about the world because there's no other choice gets up and walks off and is still speaking like a man and then through the treatment that she gets as a woman then in the world she starts to feel and and starts to become a woman and the language shift is really interesting because by the end her language is so female. Like, there's, it's, it's very difficult to put a point on it. Um, but I do think it is, it's quite pertinent that the world treats you as a woman and then your sense of woman, it, it sort of comes into full bloom, really. Like, mm. whether for bad or for good sometimes, obviously, because patriarchy. Yeah. Live it. It's, it's, it's a really interesting thing to, to consider the construct of gender in relation to other people. Yeah. Do you, just thinking about you as a teenager reading Angela Carter, do you think your idea of feminism has changed from being 17 to now? Oh my God, yeah. I mean, especially because I think what a lot of us found when we left school was the people who didn't go in for it then, who were like, oh, you know, what is this feminism? Everyone was confronted with it in the real world. Mm -hmm. And that real world experience is nothing 
that there's no theory and there's no there's nothing that can prepare you for it so yeah I think you do constantly evolve your feminism as it goes along I try to learn through reading what you know the generations below me are doing to feel comfortable and free yeah I learn I learn just a lot by kind of reading what what you kids are up to what us kids are up to (laughs) yeah I mean I'm so impressed by how free it is like every everyone I I follow that are kind of you know sisters or cousins or um, of my friends I'm so happy that it seems to be going in a way that is more freeing than restrictive yeah it's so interesting thinking about what like thinking about like what your children will be thinking and like discussing and yeah. in like 15 years or like less probably because they'll be thinking about it from a much younger age it's so, it's so nice that it's come they're coming afresh to it as I confront my feminism throughout my life you know you go into the working world you realize how it's not set up for women and it's so antiquated in so many ways and you you, you start to think about what you can do to change that which is really cool but then you, you know, you, you confront it in different areas of your life too. Like there are going to be people who haven't changed their idea of what women's and men's role in the world is since you were a kid. And you have to re-examine those friendships and mm. go, okay, well, you know, can I sit with this? And it's, it's so relevant, that sort of thing, isn't it? When like, we've been through such a turbulent period of Brexit and Trump where people are going, actually, do you know what? I have to let go of friendships that don't serve me anymore because I can't sit with this. I can't, yeah. you know, if if you're not if you're not on board with people having kind of civil liberties then like goodbye you want to create a responsible atmosphere but um you do that even with your own parents I think as you go through having children um you know there's certain things so for example in in my mum's generation there is no consent for young children and I I I feel quite challenged by that whenever I'm hanging out with you know extended family members there's a come here I'm going to grab you kiss me or hug me mm. and I'm like well, that's okay first of all you need to ask and second of all if they say no that's a no yeah and that's so obvious to me but it's not obvious at all to that generation you, you do I think you have to constantly re-examine whether your feminism serves you or or it can be is it in line with what's going on in society it's a constant work in progress isn't it like it's the more you learn the more you figure out how much you don't know yeah it's almost less about changing what you think and changing your mindset into assuming that you don't know everything. And so mm. being ready to accept changes to your views on things yeah. rather than getting a new yeah. view and being like, okay, this is my view now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that brings us to the end. That's sad. Sit here all day. I could sit here all day, <laughs> but I feel like my voice is quite jarring for people to listen to for much longer. Thank you so much for doing this it's so nice it's so fun and i just love where this whole podcast is going i just wanted to ask why why did you settle on the name bosom how did you do that because i love the idea of people being in your bosom you know you're Mm. like having um like a bosom of friends i don't know if that's a word that's kind of a word that i would use and also my mum i was really embarrassed that she said the word bosom all the time (laughs) I was just like, why don't you just call them boobs? Like, like everyone else does. <laughs> she was like, I'm not going to call them boobs. Um, I think I've said this before in other ones, but it's, I feel very strongly about, it's kind of links to what you said of the idea that, that everybody's identities, they don't actually necessarily belong to one person. It's really constructed by everyone who 
you meet and people who bring yeah. you up and this idea that you know it takes a village to raise a child and I think that continues for the whole of your life and yeah. the idea of having this circle of people your bosom friends and people in your bosom mm. who kind of support you define you you support them you influence each yeah. other you help each other grow yeah that's where bosom came from it's very like it's a very kind of does a lot of things doesn't it that word apart from like the shame of being about 15 yeah and teachers using the word like it's it's so it it says community it says closeness it says nurturing so many things yeah what was the <laughs> phrase that your english teacher said to you as you left have faith in god girls she'll take care of you that's yeah. that's how i'd like to end have faith in god yes. she'll take care of you I don't think there'll ever come a time when I don't see Natalia through my 10-year-old eyes as my cool older cousin's cool older friend. So it's amazing to have such a fun and rambling chat with her. Thank you to Ali and Helena Shilson for the beautiful music throughout. And thank you for listening. If you're feeling friendly, give us a rate and review on the podcast app. See you again soon.